in Philippians, we are going to be talking this morning about uh, a message uh, that we come to from the Apostle Paul that I've entitled, Working Out Your Salvation. This couldn't be a, a, a more fitting, uh, I think, by God's providence sermon when it comes to graduation, uh, because you are now, many of you graduates, going out, figuring out where are you, what are you going to do, and how are you going to work and get into the workforce. But what we're talking about this morning is, how do you carry your faith wherever it is that God has placed you so that you are honoring uh, before the Lord? We live in a culture, by and large, where sometimes it's very difficult. As soon as someone hears the word work, it's almost like they're allergic to it. It's like, oh, it's going to be hard. What did you think work meant? Uh, and so often, when we think about this, when it comes to our own Christian walk, we hear a title of a sermon, Working Out Your Salvation, and you may have a very similar response. Like, oh, that means I have to give effort. Yes, you will. And sometimes you are going to give so much effort uh, that it's painful. You're going to have to set aside things and be set apart in such a way that, that, the, that God's call to work out the salvation that you have is something then that pleases and honors the Lord. Well, this certainly follows the very idea that we have been tracking uh, that Paul has been giving to the Philippian church in, in Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to see some of these, but just by way of reminder, remember this key verse. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear, of, hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we just finished a text of scripture which was very uh, humbling. When you begin and I begin to think about uh, how different and how much we struggle with pride and humility, and we just laid out last week this, this beautiful passage that was an illustration of how important it is for you and I to be selfless individuals, humble uh, in our disposition, humble in our attitude and our practices before others. And now he moves into another section, and he's connecting these two by way of this term, obedience. Okay, so if you're thinking, okay, well, what is the connection? The connection is, if you see Jesus Christ obey to, to the degree in which he did, Paul now switched gears and says, you also must obey in the very same exact way. He gives us a template in the life of Jesus. And now he calls us to work that template out. I don't know about you, but I love it when uh, you have a template for something versus creating something that you're like, uh, when somebody ever done this, when somebody calls you or you go to a job and they say, uh, they give you some kind of funny, uh, fuzzy group of expectations and you have no idea, but they say, uh, I'd like you to do a little of this and a little of that and a little things over here now. Get to work. Like, I always remember standing back like, yeah, but what exactly do you want me to do? See, Christians can often become like that, and Paul does not want us to be, have this fuzzy line of saying, okay, what do we do? How do we correct things? How do we go about living the Christian life? Now, what you're going to notice in the text is we're covering two verses this morning, and it's part of a larger section or a larger paragraph, and I'm thankful because uh, Pastor Ben is going to be 
taking that next week and then covering the latter portion of this. So we're going to focus on verses 12 and 13, and then he's going to finish up this section next week. Uh, and not because I'm going to be gone, uh, but because this week I'm going to be bringing my family back. So uh, you'll see a little more of that filled down there. Uh, and so thank you for your prayers. But I'm thankful that Ben is willing to do that. So as we think about working out our salvation, this is the idea, I think, that he calls us to that we understand in Christian theology as progressive sanctification. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with various components of theological terminology, and, and you might have heard this and said, oh, I don't know exactly what that is, or you're a young person here, or a young child saying, well, what is sanctification? Simply put, it is growing in your holiness so that you become more like Jesus Christ. We use these large theological terms to really help us explain in shorter fashion what it means to grow in holiness, and that's exactly what Paul is trying to identify. Work out your salvation or work out your holy living before an almighty God. But, but, but sanctification comes, and if we understand it correctly, there's really a past, present, and future dimension to it. The past component is in the sense, there was one point in your life where you were totally unsanctified. You were outside of God's, uh, of, 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 of God's family. You were depraved in your sin. You were destined for hell. And there was a point in time where you recognized that in the past and you called out through repentance and faith and he justified you. And then that process of sanctification began at a point in time where you had the Holy Spirit come and indwell you. That's, that happened in the past. Now, it's supposed to move on, and that's what, what Paul's trying to describe to us. Don't allow your salvation just to become some past uh, circumstance. I was always well aware of this as a pastor as we're listening to various baptism testimonies or testimonies within a group. And so often Christian people say, oh, well, way back when, and they give you a date and time, and they, they kind of say, well, here's where I was, I was going to hell, but they leave out all the present aspect of how it's supposed to change you. See, because sanctification is not just about recognizing that you needed him at one point in time, but there is an ongoing work of sanctification that ought to be cleansing us. Now, then there's this future aspect, one which we are thankfully looking forward to, where at one point, and, and you, you are looking forward to this, whether you know exactly what it is, but could you imagine to be fully sanctified, or the way Paul often understands it is fully glorified. Oh man, could you imagine living a week without not one single sinful thought in your mind? Oh man, I mean, just the thought of that, it's like, let's just go. Come now, Lord. Because, because we wrestle with that. We wrestle on an ongoing basis. The moment in time that we look forward to is when we will be sinless. That's future sanctification. But in the present work of sanctification, we ought to find ourselves sinning less. Not sinless, that's coming, but sinning less on a regular basis. That's present, ongoing work of sanctification. Now, as we understand our main idea in this particular, these two verses, I think this is really what Paul is trying to 
to help us understand. And I put it for you here so that you can write down this main idea. That Christian's obedience requires personal effort with an aim to pleasing our Heavenly Father. And yes, Christian, it's going to take a lot of work. Because if you haven't noticed in your life on a regular basis, or you haven't asked somebody who's close enough to you to realize what kind of sinner you are, you and I need a lot of work. Now, even, even living alone, I, I recognize like there's a lot of work in my sanctification that's going to that's gonna come up again when all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have to be a father again. Like I don't just do what I want, when I want, go where I want. Like they're all coming back. And I hope I'm more sanctified than when I left. And the goal is... And the enjoyment is that when we depart from week after week, from Sunday to Sunday, don't you desire and pray for the body that they have been working out their salvation so that what you come to, to the person you come to meet again the following Sunday, they're just a little bit more sanctified than they were the last week. Like, that's the goal. You know, I know how we love, we, we think about these ideas of, of working out our salvation. And, and all of a sudden it can be this temptation like, I am going to be the first across the line. I'm going to give so much effort. I am, I am sprinting. And then all of a sudden you puff out. It is the slow, consistent growth of the Christian on an everyday basis that God is, is about and sometimes you're moving a little faster, and sometimes you're moving a little bit slower, but you should be moving. If you find yourself not moving, you're probably moving backwards. And that's a dangerous uh, place to be. And Paul desires for the Philippian believers in the context of their living, in the context of division, in the context of an unbelieving world, Gentile people around them, Roman soldiers around them, he is saying it is so important that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so he motivates them, and he gives three motivating elements in these two verses uh, to motivate the Philippians towards obedience in three particular ways. And I want to show those to you uh, this morning. Let's start out with uh, right in verse number 12, uh, Philippians chapter 2, you're already there. He says, Therefore, my beloved. Okay, here's first motivation number one. Paul never sets to address the individuals in the, in the Philippian church without desiring to be an encouragement. Think, have you ever tried to be motivated by somebody without the encouragement? See, there, there's people that you like to be, like, there's, you, you know it and you want to believe it. There's people you tolerate and then there's people you love to be around. Now, it shouldn't be the case in the Christian community, but which ones do you really enjoy? The ones who want to be so critical and pick you apart at every little turn or watching carefully for you to slip up and mess up or the person who is invested in your life to such a degree where they're not just telling you you're always doing it wrong, but you're doing something right. Paul's that kind of apostle. I want to try to believe, I want to, I want to believe at some particular point, this was partly due to a guy like Barnabas, who is a guy who traveled with Paul on such regular occasion, who is known as the son of encouragement. I'll tell you, that guy, if there was one guy in the Bible who I think uh, I would love as a, as a traveling companion, it's that guy. I mean, I want somebody to encourage me uh, after, after at different times, 
you, would, you would be beat up with various components of things, and Barnabas was that kind of guy who said, Paul, let's, do, let's go. Barnabas was that kind of encourager. And I'll tell you what, you notice it in the language. He says, now, therefore, in connection with the previous text, therefore, since Christ was so obedient... Now I want you to be obedient, and now look at the language of endearment that he gives. He, Paul often does this, viewing the congregations in which he planted as his, his very beloved children. He says this, oh, therefore my beloved. You know what, uh, you as parents who are here with graduates this morning, this is one of the reasons that it makes it so difficult for you as a parent. These are your beloved children. Paul felt much like that when the congregations that he served and he wrote to saying, do these things. But I love it when, when you know that people love you because it spurs on an element where you know they might have to say hard things to me, but I know it's not without a loving component. And Paul recognizes for these Christians living in a world and in a culture of the first century, in a Roman culture where they were suffering, not only from the Roman oppression, but they were struggling from false teachers and they were even making it worse in areas where they didn't need to make it worse because they were suffering from the result of the division even in, in the midst of the body. And I think if the body of Philippians, the, the Philippian church were to hear this, I think Paul's deliberately trying to remind them and encourage them towards obedience to say, you are my beloved and you are beloved to each other. Because you are beloved by God. See, you, don't get, you and I don't get that status lightly. We just don't get to be able to share this idea of being beloved uh, by God and beloved by other people without an effort, without an encouragement from other people. This is the kindness that Paul demonstrates over and over again. And you might think, well, yeah, pastor, I get that. We're we're, that's what the body of Christ is. Like The whole worship service was like one big encouragement. I hope it was to you. But I am not so foolish over the years of ministry to understand how many Christian people speak the truth without any element of love whatsoever. They are so truth-driven. They are so committed. They think that if anybody believes anything other than what the, the way they believe it, the way they structure it, they have just got to say it. And they're just fomenting waiting to say it. If there is not an encouragement in the Christian community that demonstrates a kindness, who will you then go to when you are struggling the greatest? Will you? I don't find people going to people like, hmm, I want to find the jerk to give me some counsel. Like, that would just be a fun start to my week. No, you don't do that. No one does that logically. You hope that people are careful with your soul. You hope that people are kind in their words, but they're also deliberate in speaking the truth to you. Here is Paul as a model counselor, as a model discipler, saying to his children, I love you. This encouragement, he says, has to go further uh, than just a bunch of words, and he continues this, and he says, therefore, as you have always obeyed, oh, I bet that probably brought a level of smile on the faces of the Philippian church, like, hey, we got something right. Like, 
it feels like all the oppression and all the struggle and all the suffering and all the, 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 the false teachers, but we got something right. He said, so as you have always obeyed. Remember, this was a beloved congregation to the Apostle Paul who sends Epaphroditus to be able to meet his needs as he's sitting uh, uh, chained to a prison guard. And he, he was the, the visible representation of the encouragement of the body of Christ. And he says to them, as you have always done this. Oh man, I wish I could say that about my kids. Like, as you have always obeyed. Like, I can't do that. I wish I could say that about myself. But I didn't, have, I didn't always obey and Paul recognized, he's saying, what I have gathered as a characterization of the Philippian communi community was, you had a lot of obedience going on, and I think this is part of it. If you were reading this on an oral fashion, I think the deliberate intention is to say, wow, we, we, we're being obedient like Christ was obedient. We're, there are points where we got it right like Christ did it right. He humbled himself, and when we obey, we've humbled ourselves. He said, and you, and you did this as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, okay, now just stop there for a moment, because I've been a parent long enough to realize that when I walk into a room, and my no, especially as homeschool, uh, we homeschool, and they're supposed to be doing their work, and maybe uh, you've been, whether it's a homeschool parent or a parent who's dealing with uh, kids doing homework, and you walk in the room, and they make you think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But you know they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But when your presence is there, it's like, stand at attention. Let's make sure we get this right. When Paul was with them, they got the theology right. They were working on the community, uh, the, the unity within their community. He was now writing back to them, seeing that in his absence at times, there were various things that at times they had paid less attention to. See, encouragement says, you've, you've, you've obeyed in the past, and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful that when I was there, I witnessed it myself. And yet now I'm calling you based upon your previous obedience to Christ that I saw firsthand. Live it out now that I'm not there. Oh, graduates, you're, you're here this morning and you're hearing this, you're thinking, you might be thinking to yourself, I am finally out of my house. I hope that's not the case. I can do what I want because I won't have my parents over the top and hovering over me watching every decision, thinking about those things. And parents, you are, might be in that point where you're in fear and trepidation, like, what will, they what will they choose? This is a very important time period. That now in your presence they have obeyed, and yet in your absence you're desirous that they would follow in the things that you taught them. That same mentality is what Paul is getting at. And you as a parent can be a very helpful resource to them because as my mom would always tell me, I will never stop being your mother and I will mother you. You're supposed to. I want her to. 
But I can remember how uh, that parenting style that, or that parenting that changes over time as they grow to be an adult. And I remember the first time one of my children, as I was waxing eloquent on some instruction, like, you remember what I told you? You remember these things? And, and one of them said, oh, think about it. Like, I'm an adult now. Oh, big adult person. I forgot. <laughs> Don't tire a young person of having your parents' instruction and being serious about their love for you because you are part of their beloved. The way Paul looks at these believers. And you know what? If you're a parent of young children, you know, we say no all the time. Like, I think that's most of the first words my kids ever said. No. Like, yay, it wasn't, it was mom and then no. But what if, what if all of a sudden we got really, really good in our parenting skills to be able to be encouragers to our kids? Think how that would transform a culture that feels so deficient in who they think they are and the identity that they can find in Christ as you as a parent reinforce that they are the beloved of God and you're beloved because they're God's beloved. Oh, that will change the way that you parent instead of being so frustrated and, and thinking to yourself, are you ever going to get it right? Are you ever going to get it right? Where you stop for a moment as a mom and dad and simply say, can I just recount for them some moments where I see them getting it right? Man, that would be a huge blessing. I've, I've counseled so many young people through the years and older people who came from homes where they will say to me at one time or another, I have never heard my parents ever say anything good that I have ever done in my entire life. They're so disappointed with me. And they live almost the decades of their life that way, thinking they'll never be able to please mom and dad. They'll never be able to please anyone. We need a body of believers who are people who are committed to encouragement. Because that encouragement is a source that should motivate us to say, what can I do for others more than what I'm, I'm thinking about what I, what I should do for myself? And I would just challenge you to ask yourself the question, are you an encourager? Are you an encouraging father, an encouraging mother, an encouraging friend, an encouraging wife? Are you an encouraging church member? Or is every time someone talks to you about something, the first thing that's on the tip of your tongue is what the chapel isn't doing right? Like, I appreciate it because I know we're not doing everything right. No church does, by the way. But if that's the first thing that always rolls off the tip of your tongue, I think you're getting it wrong. Because you're not recognizing that, that the power of encouragement to say, I'm so thankful that we're staying stable in the truth. I'm so thankful for all the ways in which God has worked amongst the body. And yet at the same time, I know we have some ways that we need to make some strides. How can we do that together? So often people in the community are so, uh, can be tempted to be less encouraging. I have received plenty of uh, thank you notes and other notes in a box after a morning service to tell me all of the ways in which I'm not doing certain things or the body needs more adjustments. Those are always the most helpful. I don't, I, I don't go away from that and be like, mm, I wanna, that was so enjoyable, I want to read that letter again. 
But there was truth in various things that they said that we needed to think about. And yet if you do it in a manner by which they're so put off by how you say what you say, they'll never get the point of what you're trying to say. And that's what encouragement alleviates is to say, I love you so much, I am for you, I am for your walk with the Lord, I know you're imperfect, and Paul models that as an apostle who loved his people, as a pastor who cared for his people, and he desired for them. And he, honestly, I think part of this is that he says, I know you've obeyed when I was there, so I actually just expect that you'll do the same thing in my absence. You'll just keep doing that. And whether I'm there or not, because Paul wasn't sure in this context whether he'd ever get out of prison, he was very hopeful that he would. He wanted to come see them again, but he wasn't necessarily sure if that would happen on any uh, soon occasion for him. He continues to move forward, but this encouragement factor is so important because he says, as you have obeyed, Let me just take this word for a moment because I do think it's an important element. When he says, as you have obeyed, he is recognizing there was a point in time where you have actually listened so that you could actually obey rightly. Okay, there's this always dimension of obedience where it was preceded by an understanding or an acceptance of a truth that was given. And we who are parents or you as friends where you are talking with somebody and you're giving them some gospel truth and you hear them, but you're, they're listening, but they're not listening. You know what I'm talking about? Like I say that to my, I know you're hearing me, but you're not listening. See, obedience is the culmination of listening with a purpose towards obedience. As you have listened, Paul says, you have listened well enough so that you now can become obedient to the way Jesus Christ was obedient. When you're reading the Bible and you're hearing sermons and you're listening to podcasts and uh, you're, you're doing various devotional efforts, do you read just for the sake of reading so you can check the box as a good Christian for your week and say, I did my devotions for five out of the seven days or seven out of the seven days? Or do you read for the sake of listening, hearing and appreciation and obedience? I'll tell you what, as you see that, you will watch people grow in their Christian walk. And it is the duty of the congregation to recognize the growth that is happening around them. When is the last time you went to somebody in this body And you said, man, you are such an encouragement to me because I have watched you grow in this particular area of your life and I am so excited as to what God is doing for you. And I am watching you being changed into his image. No one else could do that except for the Lord and I just want you to know that. See, I think often we, we don't, take time to do that because we're so encompassed with everything else going on, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, the areas of growth that we genuinely need, but we don't take the time to notice what only the Holy Spirit can produce in the life of believers. I hope you will take that seriously as you go out and among the the congregation. Be that kind of encourager. Be that kind of Barnabas in the midst of the community. But he motivates them in a second way as well, not only by saying, be a good encourager, 
for people to obey, now he gives them some instruction. Now here's the instruction. Work out your salvation. This is the main command of the passage. Now, I want you to notice something. Now, somewhat confusing, many people will come to this text and say, uh, given a past history or a, a, a background of various works-centered theology or works components of salvation, and they'll say, oh, oh, look, I finally found a text that says, work out your salvation. See, it is about me. I've got to work really hard. And, and God's going to do his part. But, 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 it, but it's also, I got, it's about me. You know, I think we have an entire book of the Bible in Galatians that some people had to struggle with that. You may want to spend some time in. How, like Paul would say in Galatians 3, oh, foolish Galatians, having now begun in the Spirit, are you now living by the flesh? So we have a duty to understand. What does he mean? Work out your salvation. Now, he doesn't mean this. He doesn't mean work for your salvation. That's not what he said. It's work out your salvation. It's a very deliberate, intended difference. And if you read anything with the Apostle Paul, one of the things that you, rec you recognize is Paul's calling to the Christian community and the churches that he planted to continue to work out their salvation. What does that mean? Mean to bring it to completion. Now, if you look in a various number of commentaries and you realize how some people are interpreting this, even the very word salvation, there are various commentators that may say something like this, working out your salvation is more about a social dimension because of the division. They need to bring healing to the body and healing to one another. Well, I don't necessarily think that he's really describing the social aspect of salvation, even though at times the term can be interpreted uh, healing components or restorative measures. Here, he is connecting with all of his previous statements about salvation that were all eschatological. There is a point in time where your sanctification will be complete and you have to work out and live your Christian life so that you are holier and holier and you're sinning less and less at a point in time where Jesus Christ will return and you will be glorified. That's the point. It's how a Christian ought to live now that he is saved. Now, that wouldn't make any sense in the book of Philippians when he calls them his, their beloved saints in Jesus Christ to now say, now remember, you have to work it out yourself. That is not the point. Working out your salvation has nothing to do with the fact that you could in any way, shape, or form earn the salvation or the righteousness that Jesus had given to us. Now this is a, a good opportunity for us to pause just for a moment to say this. Notice how important our Bible study methods and hermeneutics are. You could take a verse and then run with this and say, look, it is about works. But remember, a very important hermeneutical or Bible study principle that says clear text help convey what obscure texts or certain things say so that we have a greater clarity. Now, if you were to go through the Bible and you recognize, is it really about a work salvation and you came to the book of Galatians, I think you would be quite surprised. It's not about works. If you were to come to uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. But, 
Emily always forget verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But see, we don't do good works to get us saved, but we, we, we do good works to demonstrate an appreciation. And I think that really challenges us as believers to simply ask ourselves the heart-probing question, what motivates your works for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you do it because, well, that's just what he tells me, but I'm not really excited about it? Or you focus on so much on how hard it is and difficult and the suffering in the world that all of a sudden you forget that you're working out your salvation is more duty-driven instead of something that's a, is a pleasure to do on behalf of someone who has done so much for you. See, Paul encourages them, and then he instructs them in motivation to say, work it out. There is effort, Christian, that goes into your Christian walk. Do you not at different times in your life, like, you're contemplating, do I have enough time for my devotions today? Do I have enough time for this today? You are having to wrestle and take all of those thoughts captive. That is effort. Here's what, by and large, I find for most people, including myself, so please join me in understanding this. So many of us want all the blessings with no effort. And that's how we live our Christian life. We know the truths. We know the blessings. We just expect, oh, it's just going to happen. And so we live that way. I love how John MacArthur uh, puts it in two different categories of different groups in history, one called quietus and one called pietus. Quietus say, oh, you know what? Let go, let God. You ever heard that? Expressing the very passive nature of somehow I just, I'm just going to sit here and kind of like, when are you going to do this, God? Like, I've been waiting. Now, who's that on? It's on God. And now people who live that way find it very easy to say, well, I've been doing everything. I've been going to church. I've been listening. I've been doing my devotion. It just seems like God doesn't have time for me. And we express it that way. Well, that's certainly not what Paul is trying to get us to do. Or the very pietistic idea. And this often happens in, a, in groups that are super committed to Bible study. So this ought to alarm us in some sense. Because we're committed to that, are we not? That all of a sudden, it's, it's me doing it. Oh, I'm going to read more of this. I've done it in an hour. And then you're posting it on Facebook like, look at me with my devotions. I'm such a good Christian. Like, and how come no one's, you know, like, how come no one's responding and liking it and putting the little smiley face and the little love thing? Oh, you're so amazing. We, people love that. And it becomes poison to the soul. Because the reason you end up doing the works is to get noticed. See, you can't be so passive in your approach to Christianity, and you can't fall into the other ditch where all of a sudden you're saying, it's all about me, because that turns into legalism. And now I, I do the things I do, I dress the way I dress, I make sure I'm around the right people, I have my devotions, and I'm all doing it, all so that I could say, look at me. The danger is that when we work out our salvation, it can't be about us. It has to be about him. 
It has to be enveloped by and, and, and undergirded with a foundation of, I'm doing this because I love the Lord Jesus Christ. The one has now, who has now been given the name that is above every name. The Lord. And that my allegiance in my obedience is demonstrated in my Christian effort. Oh, don't be one of those Christians all of a sudden who, fall, who falls prey to the understanding that I want all the blessings without any of the effort. And you might have to encourage people in a very truth-filled, loving way to say, and I've had to do this many times, you haven't been giving a whole lot of effort in your marriage. You haven't been giving a whole lot of effort as a wife, as a friend, as a father, as a mother, as a churchgoer, as an employee. And all of a sudden it has escaped their mindset as if they could just talk about Christianity instead of living Christianity. And Paul wants us to live it out in the way that Jesus lived it out in direct obedience and humility so that when he gives this instruction, he can say, you know what? I want you to work this out. This is so common in various texts of Scripture, such as 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be, rich, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, he, along with Peter, and along with all the other books of the Bible and authors of the Bible, proclaim over and over again that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But it doesn't mean that it's absence of works. If you have read James anytime recently, your faith should work. And it should work itself out with an attitude of fear and trembling. Now, don't think, I mean, we, we get these coupled words in, in, in all these ways where all of a sudden this fear has turned into a uh, I'm afraid of you kind of fear. But this is the proverbial fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it also is not disconnected from a trembling in the presence of an almighty God. Yes, you ought to revere him. But because you revere him, why would this be such a trembling moment? Because, Christian, you and I are preparing for one single most important day of our lives. Do you know what it is? When you stand before him and you give an account for the works and the, and the effort that you put into living out the life that you, were, you said you were demonstrating allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the day with fear and with trembling, that you should live your life saying, there is a future time where all will be revealed. And if you go in your, and live your Christian life is that as if it's no big deal, okay, you are going to be sadly mistaken at some particular point when you've thought you've done everything good and he starts revealing your heart attitude, that your works that will just go up in flames and it will be for nothing and you could have lived your entire life that way. Christian, where's your attitude at? Do you do your working out your salvation with that kind of reverence and awe? A self-distrust? A sensitive conscience? Fighting against temptation and pride? Being constantly aware of your own deceitfulness? 
Are you trembling in the reality of the fact that there is a day that everyone will stand accountable and that means you? That should, in some sense, not frighten you, but create a, a deeper dimension of awe, saying, he sees everything that I do, everywhere that I go, every thought that I have, everything that I look at, every person I talk to, he sees me when I'm in my car alone and when that traffic is building up and he sees me whether I'm kind at work, he sees it all. There is a sense in which you should, you should step back and say, this is a fearful thing to be before a holy God. Don't live in a trivial way, in that kind of way. And he gives us this very last point. He says, work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling and he says, and then he states this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, of all the things that he could do, you could probably get a little scared at the very beginning because Paul's saying, I'm going to encourage you and you got to work for, you got to work hard. Now, the temptation could be if you leave that alone and without this verse 13, they could be tempted if he just stopped there all by himself, he, they would be tempted to think, oh man, it's all about me. But now he says, no, it's God who is energizing you. It is God who works in you. And that's the word, the Greek word that he used for God working in you is the word for energy. He energizes your Christian faith and he infuses it with fuel from the Holy Spirit of God to say, you're not doing this alone and so this is what it says, as you work out your salvation with an attitude of fear and trembling, remember Philippian church, it is God who will do this for you and in you to work and to will of his good pleasure. It's not God's will, this is the Philippians' will. That the more that they understood God's ways and his, and his, and his, and his person and his humility and his selflessness, that their will would be bent to, to display the very mind of Christ in the community of the believers. So both to work, it is God who energizes you, so you can't take any effort. You can't say, oh, it's about me. It's not about you, because you wouldn't even do it any good works if it wasn't for God, which, by the way, means that you should stop and be thankful every time you, get, you do something that would be pleasing in God's sight and say, thank you, Lord. That wasn't just me. It was you working in me. That is so helpful. To work and to will. And what is the motive in, in their recognition? It's this. For his good pleasure. I hope that's, that's what motivates you. I hope the desire of your own heart is to say, I'm doing this not for me, not for self-recognition, but in humility, the way Christ obeyed the Father, that now the way Christ was glorified, that now we, in our glorification, can say, Father, I just desire to glorify you. And that would be the way in which you live your Christian life. So Christian, I would just tell you this as we wrap up this section uh, in verses 12 and 13, and Pastor Ben launches from here next week in some very practical instruction about what this working out your salvation looks like very specifically for the Philippian believers, that you would just do this. Walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk worthy, Christian. Give all kinds of effort this week with fear and trembling. Let me just ask you a couple of things to help you as we close. Are you just trying to live your Christian life all by yourself? 
Well, I hope that isn't the case here at the chapel. That somehow it's just kind of a Sunday morning kind of thing. And other than that, you're really disconnected. That there's an element in which you're not just saying, I'm doing this in my own effort with outside, outside the body and you're some lone ranger Christian who thinks they can use the body in some way on Sundays to kind of fuel them up and then they can go out and do everything and say, look at me. This is not about any one of us. You can't do it alone. You need the body of Christ, which means in a number of different months when we have opportunities for you to be part of a small group, you should take that serious. Because all of a sudden, you can't just say, oh, I'm just going to get everything I need on Sunday morning. Sunday morning isn't intended to give you all you need. I hope it gives you a lot of what you need, so you can encourage me that way. But the reality is it's not intended to give you everything. It's intended to help you launch to different ways of service and ways to work out your salvation with one another. How do you behave when you're all alone? When, you, when no one else is around you watching? When your parents aren't there, young person, and you're all out on your own and you've grown up, will these truths matter to you then? That is so important that we as parents teach, teach our children that so that we, we can see them thrive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, good, are you a good encourager? Are you working hard to bring unity here at the chapel? Or are you just waiting for any moment where all of a sudden you can say the most critical thing that you know you wish would happen but isn't happening for so long? Don't be that. Be a person who works hard at unity by demonstrating the example of Christ's obedience in heart attitude as well as actions so that we together can remember, and this is Paul's reminder to them, the very ending verse of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So give a lot of effort. Remember that Jesus Christ is energizing you. God is energizing you for the work that he's given you to do. But he's going to keep you. He's going to help you persevere. He will complete the work at, at the very end in the future sanctification, and you will be glorified. And you will be so thankful when we get to that point. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace to us. Lord, as we walk through a text of Scripture where we know how important it is to give a deliberate effort to be the kind of encouragers that you, you desire us to be. Lord, that we wouldn't be lazy in our Christianity. Oh, there's so many times where we prefer laziness. Even as Christians, when we should be giving deliberate effort. Oh, Lord, thank you for, for being the energizing element that works in us. Spirit of God, thank you for indwelling us, convicting us, guiding us to the truth. We just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.